three, two, one, I relaunch the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co-founder of I relaunch and your host for today. Today, we welcome Anna Shank and Elizabeth Wallace, the co-authors of the newly released book, The Ambition Decisions, What Women Know About Work, Family, and the Path to Building a Life. And I'm so excited that we have both of them here today and we get a chance to really dig in. So Hannah and Liz, welcome to 321i Relaunch. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes. So uh, let's just dive in. And maybe, Hannah, we can start with you. Uh, In the book, you talk about three kinds of career women, and we are primarily talking about women here, Um, high achievers, opt-outers, and flex lifers. Can you please explain each one of those categories briefly? Sure. Um, so the high achievers were are the women who have um, very traditionally successful careers. So these are women who um, are have a lot of their ambition is channeled into their career. They are people who are um, recognized in their field or um, C-suite. Uh, have C-suite roles or kind of like, you know, describe their offices down the hall from the CEO. Um, They are in a range of fields, but they are people who are doing very well career-wise. The second group that we found were the opt-outers. And these were women who had left the workforce after, um, sometimes after their first child was born, in some cases after their fourth child was born. Um, and everything in between. And then um, the third group that we found were the flex lifers. Um, So these were women who, in some cases, worked full-time. In other cases, were freelancers or worked part-time. But their defining characteristic was that they chose to stay in a role um, that was sort of flat for a long period of time. So they might have been in the same position for like 10 or 15 years um, because it gave them flexibility with other pieces of their life. So in some cases, because it meant that they could um, leave at three o'clock and meet the school bus every day. Um, In some cases, it was because um, they wanted to do things like um, live in Boulder and not in New York City. Um, and so they had taken themselves off of the C, you know, the C-suite track and kind of downshifted their career a little bit. Um, in some cases, it was because they wanted to volunteer at an animal shelter or, you know, compete for in trail mar- trail running marathons. Um, that that's super interesting. And you know, y- you're talking here to an audience of opt outers, basically. And I'm I'm an opt outer myself. And then I, I relaunched my career. And most of our audiences is in a, in a range of stages in terms of transitioning back to the workforce. So as you can imagine, uh, we were laser focused on the opt outer category and everything you wrote about opt outers in the book. Um, Liz, can you give us a couple of examples of opt outer stories that you covered in the book and maybe what you learned from them? Sure. We so our uh, in chapter one we introduce sort of our archetypal opt outer, which uh, was a woman who was in engineering, was in the school of engineering with us at Northwestern, 
not with us. She was in the School of Engineering, sorry, at Northwestern. She was very ambitious, very bright. She went to law school after she graduated from Northwestern and became a lawyer, uh, a patent lawyer, and went to work at this firm and, and worked her way up over a few years to partner in this firm. And she lived in the Midwest. And she got married and she had her first child. And she had interviewed nannies and had childcare all set up and she was all ready to go back to work. And she had, you know, even done the whole thing where she takes her baby into the office and, um, you know, had checked in a few times over maternity leave, maybe more than a few times. And then basically on the last week or two of her maternity leave, she, she decided, you know, I really just can't do this. I really cannot leave my new baby with, somebody else who is not, who is not in my immediate or extended family. And I need to be, I need to be the primary one to take care of my child. And so she quit her job. Um, and she was giving up a lot financially and she was giving up a lot of professional accolades and a high salary. And she gave that all up to be the primary caregiver to her child. And she, um, and she knew what she was giving up and she decided that was more important than her career, at least at that time. And, um, we, what we learned from her was that, that, um, that sometimes, you know, it's, it's hard to put a marker on this, but that, but that for a lot of women, they don't know how they're going to feel after they have that baby. You know, some women think, oh, I definitely want to stay home with my my child or my children for a couple months or a couple of years, and then I want to go back to work. But that for some women, they fully anticipate going back to work, and then that child arrives, and they don't really know how they're going to feel about it, and suddenly they feel like they can't leave that child there. And and it was it was hard to tell who would feel that way, one one person over the other, and it really did not and it was it really did not correlate with um in our interviews how much ambition that woman had another example was a woman who was a voice major and she wanted to be an opera star and she moved to she moved to the northeast uh, after she graduated from northwestern and got a master's degree in in voice and was auditioning all the time and dreamt of singing at the metropolitan opera and ultimately you know, was, was really struggling with her career as an artist and got married and was working a job in financial services to, to make ends meet while she continued to audition. And she got pregnant and had her first child and said, you know, I'm not really into this career in financial services. And I kind of feel like I'm not going to make it as a singer, as a career. Um, I can't make any money doing that. And my husband makes enough money that he can support me and our new child. And what I really want is I really want a stable life and, and I want a family and I want a home life. And this woman had come from, you know, kind of a turbulent childhood. Her, her parents um, were not able to raise her and she was raised by her grandmother. And she said to us, stability was my number one ambition. And so once, once she found that stability um, with a partner and becoming a mother, she, she really felt like this is what I want to focus on now. Um, and so she too quit her job. And, um, and what we learned from her was, was that sometimes, you know, and, and she, um, well, both of these women, um, we did not see as any less ambitious than 
what we named our our high achiever category, they they just channeled their ambition into different arenas while they were stay at home moms, and that being home with their children was was really primary to their goals and their identity as as women and as mothers. Right. Thank you. Um, Hannah, can we just step back for a minute and can you um, give our listeners the context for um, Liz's comment about that the, the some of these opt-outers were in, in different class than what you were in, in Northwestern and what the premise was for the book um, in terms of who you interviewed? Yes. Yes. Um, so we, so this, this project really grew out of a midlife crisis, um, a joint midlife crisis, as many great things do. Um, Liz and I had gone to Northwestern together. We'd both graduated in the class of 93 and we'd been in the same sorority. Um, we had remained friends um, and both found ourselves shortly after we turned 40, really struggling with where we were in our careers and our marriages and our parenting and just feeling like, why is everything so hard? Is there some like mythic woman out there who has figured all of this out um, and who is just like breezing through life? And because we had gone to college together, um, we talked about the women that we'd graduated with and how we remembered them as being very ambitious um, and very motivated. And so we started, we reached out to a few people who um, we had been close to in college and started just asking them about their lives and where they were. And those initial interviews were so interesting and eye-opening and really helped us start to put our own lives in and our own struggles in context um, that we decided to interview uh, everybody that we had graduated with from that from our sorority as a... Um, closed data set because we were trying to figure out how do we interview a good chunk of women who we knew um, when they were, you know, 18, 19 years old and not spend the rest of our lives interviewing people. Um, so we ultimately ended up interviewing 43 women who um, had been in Northwestern with us in the, that same sorority. So it, it wasn't a traditional longitudinal study as an academic might do, but it was kind of a version of it because you knew everyone in college and then you reconnected with them at this much later point to figure out where they all were and to figure out whether where they landed was what you, know, uh, what you might have expected knowing them early on. Yes. Yes. So we were able to say, like, we remember that you were, you know, like wanting to be whatever, a press secretary at the White House and like, how did that work out for you? And what, what did you end up doing? Um, in some cases, it led to like some kind of funny <laughs> moments where we were like, wait a minute, you married that guy from like, we remember him <laughs> and you're married to him now. Because um, <laughs> there were actually a number of women who married their college boyfriends and like, you know, we remembered like their fraternity nickname or <laughs> so. Um, but right, I mean, it's not an, it's not a like, you know, official academic study. But the, another interesting thing that happened as we were doing this was that because we were both doing this as a side project, um, it took a long time. So it took us about three years from the time we conceived of this until we finished it. Um, so we were also able to see how these women's lives evolved over that time period as well. Um, so we were able to check in with them multiple times and, um, especially for it, it happens, I think in part because these women were at that, at this point, like in their early and then mid 
to mid forties, um, it turned out to be also an interesting transition time for them. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, so I'm a financial analyst by trade and I worked for an investment bank and then took an 11 year career break to be home with my kids and then went back into a financial analysis role. This was all before co-founding I relaunch. And I remember when I was in year nine of my 11 year career break, it was kind of this moment for me. I had just accepted the a two year term as PTO president. And I remember coming home and I remember this distinct moment standing in the kitchen. I think I was loading the dishwasher saying when this PTO president term is over, I'm going back to work. And, and this was back in 1999 when I um, had had this moment before anyone was talking about it. And I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going back. Suddenly it was just, everything came to a head and I was so ready. So, you know, when you connect with these various women at certain points, um, it could be that they're in very different places from, you know, two years out to five years out to seven years out. And also, of course, depending on how long their career breaks were. So I'm just curious, maybe Liz, you can comment on this. How you think about and define ambition as you are having these ongoing conversations with the various women who you spoke to? Yeah, so we we saw that um, that almost all of the opt outers that we talked to, we you know who we whom we had originally considered very ambitious, we we saw them continuing to be ambitious. Even, even in their opt outing and in their stay at home parenting. And we, what we, what we really learned that was, was to redefine ambition in our own lives and in our friends' lives. And we, and what we found that was that ambition is not something that can be neatly contained in a box labeled career. And it's funny that you mentioned being the PTO, the two year PTO president, because um, at what, at one point we, we were analyzing some of our interviews and Hannah and I said, Oh, six out of six of our stay at home moms. That's not exactly the right, the right number, but six out of six of our stay at home moms have been the PTO or PTA president or co-president. Um, many of them for a two year term, um, you know, because that's what they ask for now. And, it, um, and so, you know, but in, in addition to that, these women were volunteering on political campaigns. They were, um, they were being in book clubs. Some of them were in more than one book club. They were running organizations, volunteer organizations at, at their church or, or other house of worship. They were, they were, and, and, and running a household, but, but somehow, you know, it wasn't like they were, they were sitting around watching soap operas. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Hannah and I both enjoy a soap opera now and again, but that they, they were not sitting around just waiting for their kids to come home. They were, they were doing all kinds of things during the time that their children were in school um, and, and really, really had retained their ambitious personalities. They had just, they had just telegraphed it into other arenas of their life, not only parenting, but largely parenting and volunteer work. Yes. Interesting. Hold that thought for a second. I just want to tell our listeners that uh, you're listening to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, your host. And today I am speaking with Hannah Shank and Elizabeth Wallace, co authors of the newly released book, The Ambition Decisions What Women Know About Work, Family, and the Path to Rebuilding a Life. And Liz, just picking up on on where you left off with with those comments about you know leadership and ambition in different contexts. It's not only career. 
Uh, I'm just wondering um, if there was sensitivity around, well, yes, I am in this leadership role in the PTO or, in a, or volunteer on a political campaign, but it doesn't really count in a way unless I'm being paid. Did you encounter any of that? Um, go ahead, Hannah. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, we absolutely encountered that. Um, we had, you, you know, I mean, society assigns value to things monetarily, right? So um, I think that a lot of women felt like I do all, I do this stuff, but it doesn't, um, either it doesn't pay me money or in some cases we had um, women who were doing, you know, a little work here and there, but it wasn't like a significant chunk of the family income. And so therefore it didn't really count. Um, so we definitely heard that we had one friend in particular who talked about how she had been um, volunteering. Um, she'd been teaching all over the world um, and had not, but she wasn't being paid for it. Um, and so she, I think said literally it doesn't, it really doesn't count. She didn't feel like it was things that she could, there were, these were things that she could put on her resume. Um, she talked about how if she, and we actually had more than one person who said, you know, I can't get a job that pays me more than McDonald's. And she was one of them. Um, even though she felt like she had been, you know, to, to Liz's point, like she wasn't sitting around eating bonbons. Like she was doing a lot of work and a lot of really meaningful work. Um, uh, more than one person, we had a number of people who lived um, abroad and we had one woman who was like, who had organized her children to work with the local police force to teach them English. Um, so these are women who were like really actively thinking about how they could do things in their community, but because um, they were not being paid for them, it didn't feel real. Yeah. I, I mean, having worked with thousands of relaunchers and being one myself, uh, this whole idea about having your your identity tied up with who you are as a professional. Um, I, I mean, I had an experience where after I went back to work, after my 11-year career break, and I went back to work at a pretty prestigious place. It was Bain Capital, the investment firm that's here in Boston. And I remember going to a social event maybe three weeks after I returned. And I walk into the room, and my experience at that social event was unlike anything that had happened in the 11 years prior, because there was kind of a circle of mostly men that were talking in one area and a circle of mostly women that were talking in another area. And those women were mostly uh, stay-at-home moms and the men were working. And the men were like, Carol, get over here. Uh, talk to us about what's going on at Bank Capital and what's happening in the bond market. And then I went over to my friends with whom I had all I had been hanging out with and doing PTO work. And I said, hey, what's everyone doing? And one of my friends said, oh, I'm working on some stupid PTO thing. And I thought, mm. hmm. That was like the same PTO thing that I was working on, you know, three or four weeks ago. Some something about my change in status as going back to work had caused some sort of a reflection of the people um, who were my peers at home on themselves, and they were like making judgments about it. And it all had to do with this business of being paid or not paid. It was it was it was kind of fascinating. Well, and and one thing I'll add to that is that. 
a number of the women that we talked to who stayed at home talked about how the fact that they were at home enabled their husbands to succeed and move higher in their careers, um, which ultimately, of course, like brings in financial reward for the household. Um, And one woman in particular who talked about how her husband worked in finance um, and that she and had very long hours um, and that she basically did everything. She said, you know, if it snows, I'm the one who shovels. Um, And that the fact that she was at home allowed him to, you know, go in at seven o'clock in the morning um, and to move up in his career. But that because it's a behind the scenes role, it's, you know, and not monetary, you know, there's no like obvious compensation, even though her husband was able to, you know, bring more money in for the household because of what she was doing. Yeah. And, you know, um, I want to dive into one particular story that you write a lot about and you referenced it just recently. But before I do, I want to make one clarification for people who are listening carefully. Um, So when I went back to work at Bank Capital, I went back into an area that dealt with high yield debt. And that's why people were asking me about the bond market in case people are thinking, well, Bay Capital, I only think about it as a private equity firm. So just a clarification there for those of you who are really listening closely. But let's dive into the um, story uh, about a woman you call Sarah Beth. And she um, was, uh, the, I don't know if this was the same person you were talking about earlier, but someone who went to law school because she got pressure from her parents to go to law school, but she really wanted to run a charter school and teach. And she was on career break as a trailing spouse for, I think, 15 years. Her her husband um, was in the Foreign Service and her husband's name was Kyle. And then ultimately um, they come back and then she's in a position where she's getting ready to relaunch. Is, does that sum up her background or did I get anything wrong? No, that was good. That was pretty accurate. Oh, OK. Yeah, awesome. yeah that was good. Okay, because I do remember um, in the book this quote about she said when she was at social events, they would get into conversations about what you're doing. And ultimately, she said, I would end up saying I'm Kyle's wife. And this really impacted her, her identity because her identity was really defined in terms of who she was in relationship to him, who was the um, diplomat. Um, so let's just talk a little bit more about uh, Sarah Beth and when she returned. Um, so in I, at least the way I read it, it sounded like when she went back and was thinking about uh, should she invest in herself and get this teaching degree um, that her husband was the one who was really encouraging her to do so. Can you elaborate on that at all, Liz? Yes. Um, and, you know, just to hark back about what you said about, um, I'm, I'm Kyle's wife. She, you know, she was a very, she was a very strongly identified as feminist and being a trailing spouse, um, in the foreign service, the, the most common role for partners in the foreign service, mostly wives of men, um, was, was really to be a hostess, um, you know, to host, to host, um, colleagues and guests, um, visiting the country. And she, she really bristled at that because that was not what she wanted her role to be. And when she would meet people at cocktail parties, you know, they would try to figure out who she was and, and it went and would come around and say, um, well, who are you? And because she didn't have a position in the foreign service or in the organization, she'd have to say, oh, I'm Kyle's wife. And we, um, I mean, Hannah and I honestly told each other that story. We revisited that story dozens of times over the three years 
when we were doing this because it was it was just so chilling. She was she was so um, she was she was really demoralized by that. And um, yep. so so basically, when when they had been, I guess out uh, out of the country in about thirteen years, they they have to come back every every three or four years, and and that is that is when she was thinking um, her last time that they came back to Washington. That's when she was thinking of of relaunching and going back and getting her teaching certificate, which she had never, which she had never fully received earlier on. She had started doing that and then they got married and, and he got placed in the foreign service and she, and she left partway through getting her teaching certificate. So she, she did decide she wanted to go back and do that. And it required, it required, um, going back to graduate school and it was a two year program. And she, when we initially interviewed her, she said, you know, I'd really like to do that, but it's expensive. It's graduate school. And right now we're saving for my children's education, not mine, which was also chilling to us. And then we interviewed her again, I guess about a year later when she was about to, when she was soon coming back to DC. And she said that, that her husband who, at that point was, was maybe about three to five years away from retirement, but he was, he was close enough to retirement where he could sort of already visualize the spoils and, and the, the different life that retirement could bring and said, you know, um, I think it's really, it's really time that you got back to work and that you revisited this. And he had, he had wanted her to get a job while they were abroad, but it was really difficult not having, her teaching credential. And so she was not, she was not able to teach, um, at any American schools. And, uh, she was not able to teach at a local school for very much money. So that's when her husband said, you know, you, you should invest in this master's degree and and get your credential. And, you know, it's two years worth of tuition. And basically after one to two years back in the workplace and you earning a salary, we will make that money back. And then some, you know, over the next you know, 10 to 15 years. So he really did encourage her. Um, and not just for financial reasons, but I, but I think for intellectual and social ones too. And I think that he knew that that was something that was really important to her and it was also important to him. And, and he knew that, that, that she needed that to feel vital ultimately. Yeah. And also he's telling her to, uh, in it, correctly to look at this as an investment in the future, because we do see relaunchers struggle over this uh, idea about, wow, should I go back to work? Because it really feels like a break-even proposition to me when I start to have to cover my childcare or, you know, parking or cost of working, because they're looking at the incremental amount of income that they're bringing in versus the costs of working, as opposed to looking at the joint projected income of the couple and then weighing the costs against that. And then they're also not thinking about exactly what Kyle was saying. You're making an investment in the more profitable years to come. So I, I, I was very glad to see that that topic was covered in the book because I think it is so critical. Um, I'm just wondering if either one of you uh, could, could comment on um, you know, Sarah Beth saying as part of her story, I, I was reading that she said if she, when you interviewed her later, if she could do it all over again, she would have finished her teaching credential before she had kids. And she, but she was under so much pressure, I think, from her mother to get this law degree, which she never even really in, uh, intended on using. Um, did you see a theme of people 
fulfilling someone else's expectations in trying to uh, launch their career the first time around pre-career break. We we did see that theme. Um, it wasn't, you know, the majority, but there were definitely a grouping of women who um, spent a lot of time either, you know, early on in their career trying to live out someone else's dream or someone else's idea of what their life should be. Um, and some women who continued, you know, we had one woman who... Um, was a doctor who she said, basically her parents said, you're going to be a doctor. And she went, okay. Um, and became a doctor and down the road didn't ever run, you know, kind of sort of thought about like, did I really want to, I don't know if I really wanted to. Um, and it's in that case, it worked out for her. Um, but we had a number of women. So Sarah Beth was one, um, Another one, um, what, so in Sarah Beth's case, the, her parents had a, her mother had a very strong idea of um, what she was going to do career-wise. In some other cases, um, we talk, we tell one woman's story where her parents had a very strong idea of the kind of person that she would marry and the kind of life that she was going to live, which included that she would um, stay at home and uh, volunteer and be on the board of a lot of, um, you know, civic institutions. Um, and once she got to her forties, she realized actually this was not the kind of person I wanted to marry and this was not the kind of life I wanted to have. Um, so, you know, we, and we, we talk about in the book that, um, women are potentially more susceptible to this kind of direction from their parents because, of course, women um, are often pleasers. And, um, you know, if you have very strong parents who are, and in Sarah Beth's case, I mean, the fact that her mother or like basically said that you don't have a choice, you're going to law school was a little extreme. Um, but, you know, so a lot of women had parents who expressed strong opinions one way or another. And because um, they you know, and we talk about that potentially these women were even more susceptible to wanting to please their parents because these were the very qualities that enabled them to get into a school like Northwestern, which was that they thought about how can I, you know, meet or exceed everybody's expectations for me? And what are the, what are, you know, how can I get A in this and how can I get A in that? And if they, you have a parent who is saying, for you to succeed in my eyes, your life has to look like this. It would be very hard to say no to that. Um, and so some women, once they got to their forties, were able to say no. Some women were able to, you know, adjust earlier. Um, but it was definitely a theme that we saw. You know, because we say that in some cases in cases like this, the career break can be a gift because it's the first time you step back and reflect on whether you were on the right career path to begin with. Did you just fall into something by accident and take a second job in the same field? And the next thing you know, you have a career. And so there was no strategy behind it. Were you fulfilling someone else's expectations? And it gives you this opportunity to then step back and relaunch your career in an entirely new direction. And of course, you know, uh, Sarah, Sarah Beth did that. So that was it was great to, to read about that. Uh, so we're running out of time. And I wanted to ask uh, each of you uh, if you could impart a 
piece of advice that you learned from the book, especially from out for um, opt-outers for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that you've already mentioned in our conversation today? Sure. Um, I, I have a couple of thoughts. Uh, the first one is that, you know, we found, um, hopefully this will be useful to some people, depending on where they are in their career break, but we found that the women who opted out, but but sort of managed to somehow keep one toe in in the working for pay field and or and or keep up their skills in some way like volunteering for the PTO you know i have a friend who i have a friend who was a the PTA president of a school here with a 1 million dollar fund, uh, fundraising budget and she was wow. like you know basically i can i can go be a cfo somewhere now you know but <laughs> but that the woman who kept the woman who kept their who kept a toe into their field or some field and and were doing things that were marketable that you could put on your resume even if they weren't doing them for money um, and who who continued networking you know even if it was even if it was with people from school which um, I've done a lot of myself actually and gotten a number of freelance jobs that way but but continuing to network um, as if you are continuing to be a professional woman and a woman who is going to work for pay again someday, but continuing to do that and think of yourself as a, as a employed and employable person, you know, down the line, whether it's six months from now, or like you said, Carol, you know, two years when this, when this tenure of PTO is over. Um, I think those, those are crucial, basically keeping up your network, of business contacts and keeping some sort of, you know, whether it's like a continuing education thing or learning, um, you know, learning how to build a website, building your own website, you know, stuff like that, that where, where the market, you know, I'm an, I am a journalist and the market has changed dramatically in 20 years. And, um, so, so basically learning how your industry and, you know, thinking about if you want to stay in that industry, but learning how that shifts over the years and, and figuring out how you're going to adapt back into it. When, when you get to that point that you want to. Yes. You know, this whole concept of keeping a toe in. Um, one of our recent podcast guests, uh, Lisa Heffernan, who's the co-founder of Grown and Flown website, um, calls it keeping the pilot light on, which I think is a, is a great way to describe it. But excellent advice. Uh, thanks, Liz. Hannah, any advice from you? Um, yeah, so I, I think that one thing that we found was that after 40, the impossible seems possible. And we had a lot of women who, when we talked to them early in our research, said things like, I can't possibly, you know, take this job or have my life structured in this way because it just wouldn't work for me. Um, and then when we talked to them a few years later, they were suddenly doing something completely, doing the very thing that they <laughs> said that they could never do. Yeah. Um, so the fact that, um, you know, people's needs changed and, and in the book we call these negotiable, non-negotiables and negotiables and that um, everybody, every woman has her non-negotiables that are the things that she feels that she absolutely must take care of either from a parenting perspective or from a household perspective or from a, you know, I have to be the person who buys the birthday presents or whatever it is. Um, and that those things change over the years. So that for a lot of women, they, you know, who feel like I have to do this, I have to do that. Um, those, those change and slip away. And suddenly um, you're able to visualize a life that 
actually worked for you, even though, you know, when you kind of thought about it, maybe a year or two earlier, you were like, no, I could never, I could never do that. I could never, you know, um, have a full-time job or work part-time or take this, like, how would I, you know, take on freelance work or whatever it is um, that they were able to make that happen. Yeah, I really love it. It's, we see this, it's a fearless quality that, that people start to develop, you know, more in their forties and fifties. And um, we, we do sometimes see people who say, you know, I think I could only work part-time and then we catch up with them and find that they took a full-time job and they said, you know what, I didn't think I could really do it, but it's actually working out. You know, we had a few hiccups along the way when we uh, were making the transition as a family. Uh, for, those are for people who take career breaks for childcare reasons, but you know what, we've, moved on and people are more independent and and it, it turned out to be actually be a positive experience for everyone. So thank you for that. We've been speaking with Hannah Shank and Elizabeth Wallace, the co-authors of the newly released book, The Ambition Decisions. Can you tell us where people can buy The Ambition Decisions? Um, sure. The book is available at um, you know bookstores near you and also online retailers. Wonderful. Um, Hannah and Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, chair and co founder of iRelaunch, and your host. For more information about iRelaunch, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.